Welcome to Our Plant Stories. And we're going to be talking celebrity gardeners, circa 1850s. They needed a few celebrities, celebrity gardeners, as we all do today. Who doesn't need an Alan Titchmarsh when you're, when you're in need of getting, you know, trying to get people to give money to your gardening charity? We all love Alan. But in those days, they would love Joseph Paxton. We've got an offshoot episode taking us back almost 200 years and gardeners setting up a fund to provide pensions to gardeners. In this month's plant story, Mona's Karokia, we heard that Mona Abood is leaving her North London garden full of New Zealand native plants and a national collection of karokias to the charity Perennial, a UK charity dedicated to looking after people working in horticulture and their families at any stage of life. The roots of this charity go back almost 200 years, and garden historian Francesca Murray is currently doing her PhD on the forerunner of Perennial, the Gardener's Royal Benevolent Institution. For this offshoot episode, Francesca tells the story of the gardeners who began this fund, and it involves a large gathering of horticulturalists and a garden journalist. Yeah, when Perennial was actually born, or Gardener's Benevolent was born in eight, around 1830, the 1830s, there is this rather naughty and mouthy um, journalist who is a bit of a troublemaker and, and whistleblowers often are troublemakers. We need whistleblowers in this society to say, hang on a minute, these gardeners need um, some help. And he wrote a, a journal called the Gardener's Gazette, which was always quite argumentative, but it was a contrast to J.C. Loudon. And J.C. Loudon was the sort of respectable garden uh, journalist who wrote about the estates and the villas and and how it should be everything should be designed and and Glennie wrote more about the real lives of gardeners about you know people falling out with people you know somebody's plant was bigger than somebody else's plant and so he did the sort of you know the the tabloid if you like of the day and he used to gather everybody every year for a big meeting near the strand and he would lead the meeting and everybody again would feast like the florist so it was traditional of the florist he was a florist he was actually watch case maker from Clerkenwell in actual fact that's what he's got his guild membership but use the word florist but that's not quite the same as we think of the word florist today is it no no so we're talking um, not cut flowers although cut flowers were popular obviously in Covent Garden being sold but we're talking about the eight florist flowers which include for example the dahlia so Glennie was a, a, a florist and we're talking about sort of urban uses of plants on a windowsill you'd have sort of your eight pots and you would tend to these lovely little plants that you would be trying to um, sort of hybridize so that you've got a pinker sort of vein through them or um, and the chrysanthemum was another one you know you're trying to make it so it's a different shape at the head of it and, and it's tall rather than it's short and it's a very detailed um, sort of field of horticulture that was very popular because you could have your eight pots and that would be your pride and joy and those florists would take those and show them and compete who had the best you know who had the best beautiful pink you know pelagonium and things and lot and Glennie was an expert at this he knew how to do that so he did have the right credentials he was a gardener but he also had this newspaper which was about outrageous and he was very keen to bring gardeners together 
in what you could. I mean, this is the this is the days of chartism, so bringing people together was quite scary for the government, especially bringing two hundred horticulturalists together in a pub just off the Strand to suggest that actually their employers weren't looking after them. So we should look after ourselves. We must set up some sort of benevolent association that we all subscribe to, and then that money can be distributed like a friendly society or a benefit society to those that need it. So those elderly, and they use the word indigent, and indigent means poor or needy or really one foot away from the workhouse because by the 1830s we have a workhouse system that is in full swing and if you couldn't look after yourself, you didn't have an income, there was no state pension, you would be expected to uh, go into the workhouse if your family couldn't look after you. So Glennie was the hero, but there are also other nurserymen that supported him for a bit until he got a bit naughty and uh, started trying to run the association, which wasn't a good idea because he was basically a journalist and a florist. The nurserymen, for example, Mr. Groom of uh, Battersea, Mr. Buchanan, um, all these other nurserymen gathered together. And the first committee meeting, they created a committee, and the first committee was on the uh, 17th of January in 1839, and that's minuted. So we have some beautiful minutes in the archive at Perennial, which show this gathering of all the top nurserymen of the metropolis, very much started as a sort of... um, a London-centric, and it often got criticised for that, for being a London-centric association. But actually it wasn't, because the beaches were there, you'd got um, people coming up from the country, key nurserymen, that felt, again, that this was important. So it was a historic moment, that meeting on the Strand, and then it was fantastic that they then got together as a committee and said, we can do this and we're going to do it. And it took a lot of toing and froing to manage that. Obviously, when you're dealing with people and money, you know, that that can create complications. And gardeners had their own businesses to run. These nurserymen had big businesses to run that they had to run as well. So the key thing about the rules, so being Victorian, we're now in the Victorian age because Victoria acceded to the throne 1837. So we're, you know, we're in the Victorian age now and everything's changing, everything's booming, imports are coming in, the empire is expanding, plants rushing about the countryside um, to these wonderful estates. And what we have to remember is Victorian institutions needed rules because there was no real law between a head gardener and his employer. There would be the master and servant, the use of the master and servant legislation, which would mean that you you had certain rights as an employee, but really you didn't have many rights. Um, And often a head gardener or a gardener, gardening employee would be booted out, um, out of his estate cottage and left to go off to his family and find something. So really, there wasn't some sort of employment structure there. So the rules of the association gave gardeners hope that if they put their guinea, and it was a guinea subscription, or they could pay that in instalments, if they put that into that fund, that the committee would look after it, and the committee rotated. So it wasn't always the same committee for years and years and years. It was actually rotating committee. So you, you hoped that that committee would look after that money and then distribute it fairly. The distribution was really important because they held elections, so you had to be elected. And that was the first thing that sort of 
was quite complex in the sense that you had to maybe lobby a few committee members to say, you know, I worked with you on my apprenticeship in 1785 and, you know, and I'm now sort of 75 and would you mind, you know, and you had to, as a candidate, you had to do multiple things to get a pension. You had to have references from former employees. You had to have a medical certificate. You have to have an address you know, which often addresses were difficult if you'd just been booted out. So you had to have multiple things. It's a bit like applying for things these days online, you know, trying to get benefits these days. And that's why it's so relevant for today's charity is is the world of, of aid, mutual aid is still today difficult to navigate because it's lots of forms. It's lots of verifying who you are, that you are, you know, in need and in in terms of a means testing theory if you like so so it was it was tough for them and their numbers also because they had to get enough subscribers to create a big enough fund they had to network so the gardeners were the best salesmen of the institution so they would hold flower shows they'd contribute a bit of a plant sale they'd do all sorts of activities and traditionally the gardeners benevolence had an annual festival which is like the feasting of the florist so it goes right back to there um, every year so it has its anniversary dinner and that was brilliant because it brought everybody together the nurserymen and the gardeners brought fruit and flowers to decorate so it must have looked absolutely fantastic I've got one picture of 1905 which is a fantastic picture which the orchids were done by um, James Hudson of Gunnersbury House and James Hudson this is we're talking about 1905 so we've gone right through the century here but it looks a stunning display of beautiful orchids which was of course those times the fashion of the day so yeah so that was an opportunity for nurserymen to sort of show off what they could do and they also loved it because you know there was they were sang again Again, there were lots of glees, they, were, they had entertainment, they had music, and they had a lovely dinner and the fruit, of course, for pudding. So what could be better? Where did they meet? Did they have a regular meeting place in London? Yes, they did. Yes. So they met at the London Tavern, which as you, you know, taverns and meeting places of London, you know, it, it was a very good that that also moved um, as time went on. And as they sort of established themselves in 1845, they were registered as a friendly society formally, which gave some protection to them and then their funds, as it were, and also gave protection a little bit to the people who applied and the subscribers. But they had huge links to the city of London. So their venues were very much either around the Strand, which was where all the gardening journalists were so they London Tavern um, then the first one was held at the Crown and Anchor which was where the the original dinner started but then they moved along to the Metropole which is now doesn't exist anymore but it's now the Corinthia Hotel where James Bond I think they used it in James Bond it's the most stunning hotel at the bottom of Northumberland Avenue by the Playhouse and um, it is a stunning hotel and that was a very that was a sort of usual hotel for sort of 200-300 people to gather and they would have a dinner so so they used London venues they never actually they used uh, in 1852 they used Crystal Palace because of course Crystal Palace had moved to Sydenham and one of their biggest supporters was of course uh, in the early days was not only um, the nurserymen they needed a few celebrities they needed a new celebrity guy Gardeners, as we all do today, we all who doesn't need an Alan Titchmarsh when he's when you when you're in need of getting you know trying to get people to give money to your gardening charity. We all love Alan, but in those days they would love Joseph Paxton 
And Joseph Paxton was a he was a busy man, but he also lent support and he lent he opened his uh, his address book for the Gardeners Benevolent. And he actually spoke at I think it's the 1851, which was his great year, because, of course, we had the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. It was his, you know, and to have a head gardener design one of those iconic buildings and for gardeners although actually interestingly it doesn't really contain much gardening equipment and and it has has some plants in it but you know um in its day but he was such a he was a great supporter and he sort of he and the duke of devonshire the duke of the original president was actually the, the duke of cambridge but when he died there was a little shift around and then the duke of devonshire was president for a while until his death so, yes, yeah, so Paxton was a really important person, but there were other head gardeners who were great supporters. So somebody like Robert Marnock, um, Robert Marnock, uh, who designed Sheffield Botanic Gardens, and he also ran Regent's Park for 20 years. Um, he was a, an enormous supporter because I think he believed that, you know, we, no one looks after the gardeners, so we have to do it ourselves. There was this sort of feeling that, you know, we are still in this deferential situation, but so we have to collaborate. At the annual dinner, they had um, obviously in 1852, they had Charles Dickens, you know, and that was quite fun because I think he was really a sort of speaker for hire. He definitely knew Paxton because Paxton was part of Bradbury and Evans and knew the, his, you know, his publisher. There, you know, there's the connections through all of that uh, press room. But Charles Dickens was a great speaker, but so was Samuel Reynolds Hull in 1872. Now, he was fantastic. He was a Rosarian, a very famous Rosarian and, and um, Bishop of Rochester. And he was a great public speaker, big friend of Thackeray and part of that sort of Victorian kind of literature and romance. And he was always going backwards and forwards to kind of support them. Interestingly, his head gardener got a pension off the gardener's benevolent because there are little few letters saying, oh, you wouldn't just help my head gardener. So there was kind of, you know, there was there were some exchanges between these great people. But um, but the, the speakers were fantastic. And, you know, there's a whole list of very, they had the um, Duke of Westminster, they had the uh, Latham, they had um, uh, Mechie, who was a great uh, agriculturalist. They had, the, the list is just an alumni of fantastic dukes and things. And, and, and they had, so therefore the dukes and the lords and the, um, the sort of elite world of, of amateur gardeners had their uses, if you like. And they, they performed that role. But they, interestingly, with the Gardeners Benevolent, the gardeners ran it. They didn't ever have a duke actually attending the committee meetings or the subcommittees. And they also had a very loyal secretary who was called um, Edwin Cutler. And Edwin Cutler stayed for 50 years as um, a secretary. And he knew the pensioners and he knew the gardeners and he ran it beautifully. He'd worked in insurance, so he ran it beautifully and and sort of was the heart and soul of, of the administration of it. What do we know about the beneficiaries? I mean, you paint a wonderful picture of, of the events and the gatherings and, and, and uh, it's extraordinary. But what do we know about the beneficiaries as well? OK, so it, it's really important, like who got a pension and, and who could apply. So um, it is very much um, not just because there's a sort of thought, oh, well, it's just to do with head gardeners. Absolutely not. From the start, it was florists. It was seedsmen. It was market gardeners. 
gardeners. They, uh, it was um, head gardeners. It was foremen too. They could apply. And anybody who'd done, a gardener had to have done 30 years, okay, of service. So it's quite a long time. So you had to be really at the end of your career um, to get a pension. You could subscribe when you were young, but you basically. And then and then the other really important community who obviously is a, is a huge part of gardeners' lives are their widows. So when a gardener died... The widow, if if the gardener had subscribed, and I, you know, the broad sense of gardener, if they had um, subscribed and they paid enough payments, the widow could apply for a pension. So there's a a whole female body, and only very later in the century do you start to see women gardeners um, uh, subscribing and getting a pension, which is quite interesting. And you'd expect that with the Victorian age, how it, you know, feminism came through. That shows you that shift in dynamics, that shift going on as the women gardeners. That's interesting too. Yeah. So, so, and the rules were all important because again, you know, legislation and things, you know, wasn't sort of there. So market, you know, market gardeners or seedsmen, they'd have to, um, as I said, they had to come up to certain criteria. And then they'd have because sometimes the funds wouldn't be enough so um the poor the poor committee of the you know had to make some really tough decisions and some of these are quite arbitrary and some of them weren't so um you might get a head gardener um who um you know didn't have his medical certificate so he'd be deferred till the next year but you know some uh, as a chap called Edward Marshall um he applied 13 times so they'd have elections twice a year to start with eventually it became once a year but he applied 13 times for a pension and he never quite got enough votes uh, until they said right well we're just going to have to give him a pension because it's 13 years okay uh, i can think of a brighton gardener called james smith he applied 11 times now Often they were applying when they literally had a toe in the workhouse. So, so many didn't, they died before the next election, so they didn't get a pension. But James Smith got a pension for two years. Um, And uh, when he died, and this is quite an interesting story, his widow uh, was just 60, and he had to be 60 to get a pension. She um, was just 60, and she put in her forms, but her medical form was, was sort of a query. So Mr. Cutler trots down to Brighton, goes and sees whether the local nurserymen, because they use the network of nurserymen and practitioners all the way around the country to find out about these candidates, because they'd obviously got the paper in front of them. But if there was a query, he'd trot off and go and see them. And we have now we've got, you know, we're talking about 1862, we've got railway network, we've got postal network, you know, Britain is starting to be super connected. And he goes down to Brighton and he um, he comes back and he says um, to the committee, he says, well, you know, Mr. Sparry, the local nurseman, he wasn't in, which was like, mm, that's interesting. And then and I went down to her street. She lived in Hanover Street in Brighton. Well, she she wasn't in either. So I've decided that she's, you know, she's she, I think we should defer her case because really I can't, you know, I think she's perfectly capable of earning a living. Now, what I can see as a historian is I can look at the census and I can see that she's down as an ironer. So she ironed for a living because women would iron because it was piecemeal work. And she was trying to survive while she found out from the committee whether she was going to get a pension or not from them. So she was working. Her daughter on this census, you can see it again, was a laundress. And of course, you know, you can see that those women are trying to survive 
and 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 he will have and in, if you if you look at the set, other pages of the census you realize there are 17 laundresses in that street so it must have been the laundry street of brighton and they're you know and they're and and they're these women are trying to survive because the main breadwinner james who probably worked for that nurseryman and probably paid all his subscriptions he's up to date on his subscriptions and uh they um you know Cutler has made a snapshot decision and said, "I can see she's working. She, I don't need to. I don't need to help them." And of course, you know, I'd say, "Well, she's in her sixties. She's yomping mangles and what you know, and doing a very physical job, just like gardening. Give her a break. Give her the money." Um, and so that's really interesting, um, you know. And other gardeners, you know, um, the other very, uh, which sounds cruel today. But if somebody uh, was a, a, a submitted, you know, dementia in its form, however that worked then, and I don't know, you know, medically, um, they would automatically have their pension stopped. They would, once they got into that workhouse, that infirmary, the pension, because they were in receipt of parochial relief. So luckily, today's perennial have buckets of empathy and would, I would, you know, don't, won't, won't, won't view it in that way. But we are talking about harsh you know, harsh Victorian morals, you know, this is the time of Dickens, it's the time of, you know, the bitterest cry, you know, self-help, thrift, it's about you as an individual preparing for your future. Um, so, yes, um, and, and as the as the sort of century marched on, you're getting many more institutional um, gardener support. So, um, for example, Bruce Finley, He's a good um, example of an institutional head gardener and sort of mover and shaker from Manchester Botanic Gardens. And you can see him networking in, becoming part of the committee. They made a real commitment um, later on in the century, in the 1880s, to add country members, they call it, to the committee. So that then they, that network expanded, that they reached out to like, you know, Kendall and uh, Sunderland and you know Wales and you know because all these places had their own little clubs and things but then there was a, a desire to get the word out about the gardeners benevolent because um, you know that was the only way to get you know get these networks working so they could build the subscriptions but if you think about it when they started in 1840 they had one pensioner from South London. And then when you're talking about 1908, you know, you're talking about they have over 60 applicants and they're able to give 30 pensions. So what they did at the end, towards the end of the century, because the demand was getting massive, there were more and more pensioners saying, you know, people saying, you know, elderly or widows saying, I, I really need some help, is they set up two funds. And, and this was obviously because we're talking about the Victorian age, it's got to be hooked on to some sort of big celebration of kind of Victoriana. So in 1897, you've got Victoria's um, Jubilee and they created the Victorian Era Fund. And that was specifically to give um, short term relief to gardeners. So those waiting on the list for a pension who couldn't get elected because they couldn't get enough votes, you know, they would um, they would get a be given five pounds to keep going, and then they'd stay on the list and they'd sort of jump through. And then they also had something called the Good Samaritan Fund. I mean, it sounds very kind of patronising, but actually, it was a way of non-subscribers getting in that queue to see if they could get a pension. And those those funds were um, great. They've also had funds um, and legacies given to them. So one legacy, um, they had their first legacy was from Aiton, uh, John Aiton, who was the brother of William Aiton, who um, ran Q. 
And he was a royal gardener, but he gave the first uh, legacy. And thereafter, um, legacies came in sort of every so often. Uh, but, you know, a lot of women gave legacies. So there's this lovely thing that, that kind of crops up as you march through the century of women who have obviously had a very close relationship with their gardener, a sort of romantic relationship. And these are the amateur gardeners, you know, that, that remember their old gardener of childhood. And they give money to the gardeners, a legacy or a lovely donation or a subscription to say thank you because their gardener has meant so much to them, you know, and to their family. So you get a lot of that, you know. Um, and obviously there's lots of famous families that do also um, give legacies, you know, the Rothschilds, big city players, uh, the Schroders, they give lots of donations, but they have fantastic famous gardens, you know, with, with very, you know, leading edge kind of techniques and what they were doing so they were again it was exemplary and they regarded the charity as being vitally important for the for the trade you know as part of it professionalizing and part of it you know having a structure of looking after its own as a historian this must just be fascinating for you i think it is because you know, um, I mean, I went back to FE College um, and trained as a gardener and a garden designer and then worked as a gardener and ran my own uh, practice. And then I just thought, what's really weird about, you know, colleges and things, garden college, you know, design colleges or, you know, FE colleges is they don't teach why we are a nation of gardeners. We are a nation of gardeners, Britain. But where does that all come from? And garden history is, you know, such a, it is a niche subject, but it is very it's a vital part of um, of understanding, you know, the importance of gardening to our to our country and to our psyche. And I'm very interested as a historian because a lot in garden history is written about, you know, the Duke of Bedford did this and the Duke of Westminster did this and da da da. But I'm interested in the people who actually dug the soil and actually, you know, gave their lives to horticulture and put put in so much of their skills and their expertise and their lives. My thanks to Francesca Murray for sharing this fascinating story. The name changed to Perennial in 2003, and the charity is dedicated to looking after people working in horticulture and their families at any stage of life. I'll put a link to their work on the website, where you can also see some of the original documents from the charity's history. You can support this podcast by buying me a coffee on the website, where you'll find all the gardening advice and tips and previous episodes, ourplantstories.com. It's where you'll also find Mona's Karokia and hear the story of how she came to hold a national collection, which was not her original intention. If you have enjoyed this episode, do think about writing a review on your podcast app, as it really helps to share the word about this podcast. Think algorithms and all that. And I pledge, if you do buy me a coffee on the website, I will spend it on the podcast, not plants. Our Plant Stories is presented and produced by me, Sally Flatman. <laughs>